When the political waters get choppy, the rhetoric heats up, and the deepest of divides are on display, it's easy to wonder how we'll ever manage to solve something as large and complex as health care in the United States. This November's election, centered most on who's going to be the next president, is no exception. Competing narratives, scenarios, and what-ifs are flying. And yet, a tremendous amount has been going on with health reform and health care improvement across the country that will not, most experts agree, go up in flames come election day. That's not to say that what's emerged from Washington in the form of new laws, policies, and initiatives can't or won't be challenged or haven't mattered and motivated many. But the bigger story remains finally what the healthcare improvement community does with its own wisdom and knowledge and consensus that new models and designs are urgently needed to improve quality and to lower costs. What commitments have you made or can you make to your staff and to your patients that can withstand the uncertainties of policies, politics, and elections? That's just one of the questions we'd like to explore on this edition of WIHI. And welcome to WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. We do this bi-weekly and also for your later listening and convenience, you can find the program on IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan. I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. And I really want to thank you for your interest in today's program. About 1,500 of you enrolled, which is fantastic. And I suspect... Uh, you're most interested in what our two terrific guests have to say about the dynamics in play right now, raising all sorts of questions and uncertainties about government policies and programs, payments, and purpose. I also want to put in a plug for tweeting about anything you hear uh, that you'd like to tell others about, about today's program. And if you can, please include at IHI uh, in your tweets, and that way we can bring others who follow IHI on Twitter into the conversation. So let me now introduce our guests, both of whom will also be headlining a great event IHI is hosting in D.C. on November 8th called Out of the Blocks. There's information about that on IHI.org. There are also longer bios about each of our guests on our websites and their websites, and so I offer just the briefest of introductions. Chris Jennings is joining us uh, from the heart of it all, D.C. these days. (laughs) He's the president of Jennings Policy Strategies, a consulting firm specializing in helping organizations develop policies that enable more Americans to access high-quality and affordable health care. Many of you know of Chris from his many years as a policy advisor uh, in Washington, including eight years in the Clinton White House. Welcome, Chris Jennings. Thanks. It's great to be on your show, Madge. It's wonderful to have you. Don Berwick is here in the studio. He was IHI's co-founder, president, and CEO for more than 20 years before being appointed uh, as administrator of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS. He held that position until December of 2011. Don is currently doing a lot of speaking and writing, and he's also a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress. Welcome, Don. Thanks, Madge. So we, as uh, you could see here on the right-hand side, Side, and it is uh, time limited so that we can at some point collapse the screen and then we'll have uh, the chat screen back uh, open uh, for all of you who are logged in. We are doing some informal polling today, as I was teasing with Don. You're not going to read about it in the New York Times. Uh, we will perhaps discuss some of these results at the November 8th event. And anyway, we, it's a sense of the environment, uh, some of the uh, sense of the crowd, uh, even a way for you to all see uh, what, what's the sentiment out there amongst your 
colleagues across the country and even uh, globally. Lots of people follow our elections. Um, for those of you on the phone only, this is an online poll. My apologies, no exclusion intended. You're more than welcome anytime during this program to share your answers by emailing info at IHI.org. And I'm just going to say very, very quickly for those on the phone only, the questions I asked were, how, well, the first one, how have the following federal policy initiatives influenced your organization's plans and strategies? You get a choice of not at all, moderately, strongly. We're asking about the Affordable Care Act. We're asking about specific ACO, ACA payment programs, uh, like reducing readmissions. We're asking about ACO programs at CMS, Partnership for Patients, and Health IT programs coming out of CMS as well as the Office of the National Coordinator. We have two more questions that we hope we can get in uh, today, and we'll look at the results shortly. So thanks for taking part in the poll. How many more minutes for that one, John? Uh, only about two or three more minutes. All right, and we'll uh, at some point uh, take a moment and pause, but now to multitask, let's get underway with our guests. Chris Jennings, as promised, I'm going to start with you. Uh, uh, we're a little more than three weeks out before the elections. Uh, the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, and Medicare programs and policies like the ones we've, we're asking about in the poll continue to bounce around in debates as though a great deal is up for grabs, depending on the outcome of the presidential contest, but also perhaps what happens in Congress. Do you think this is truly the case? And if not, is there a more helpful way to think about at these initiatives right through November 8th? Chris, welcome. Well, thank you. And, uh, of course, the answer is that uh, it all depends, and there's many moving parts, but uh, generally and directionally, uh, health reform is happening and has been happening pre-ACA and after ACA, and the only thing that is certain about health reform is that health care reform is reformed. And uh, And I think the other certainty that has come about, I would say, over the last three to five years and much more intensively after the enactment of ACA uh, has been a, a almost unprecedented, I would say, unprecedented acknowledgement uh, and movement to adopt to what is perceived to be a new demand by public and private purchasers to more accountably uh, deliver high-quality health care in ways uh, that uh, return give give purchasers a better return on their investment, and the consequence is is, is um, serious to health systems. Uh, so much so that many of them are already moving ahead in significant ways to adopt and adapt to that inevitable environment and to see how they can survive and thrive within it. Um, I would say this, that um, it's, uh, it, it is driven by uh, a frustration by the payers in particular, and a sort of general sense that it is a, a dynamic that we're facing, that it, it is unsustainable about our, our growth rates, and, uh, and, and we have an undeniable uh, demographic explosion. Um, it is also true that um, there are many factors emanating out of Washington beyond the Affordable Care Act that is that are, are promoting this activity. It's not just the uh, private sector that has been demanding change um, and the ACA uh, and everything around the ACA, but it is the inevitable debate that's coming up around deficit and debt 
um, and reform of how we pay our physicians. So whether it be uh, the doc payment fix, uh, the so-called Medicare and overall health and domestic sequesters along with defense sequester in January, the multiple tax reform uh, expirations and their their impact on the political and budgetary environment and economic environment, uh, the debt limit, uh, and, and this ongoing discourse and discussion about deficit and debt reduction and the need for entitlement reform, it, it cannot be overstated that uh, pressure from all avenues is is leading to ongoing um, uh, incentives for people to change and providers to change and systems to change. And I think in the end, um, it can be all for the better. And that's why we always talk to Don Burwick to give us hope to that end. <laughs> All right. Well, he's handed the baton to you. Thank you, Chris. And we'll continue to uh, dig at this in just a moment. And again, everyone's logged in. You can see our uh, polling results. Um, we're uh, kind of getting wrapping our minds around the use of this on WebEx. Uh, but um, one of the interesting things that I'm noting is that I don't see too much of in the not at all category. And I'd say right now it looks like the ACA payment programs in terms of influencing strategies right now seems to have had the biggest, most resounding, uh, followed uh, closely by the Affordable Care Act. Um, and then Health IT is kind of in there as well. So you're um, – well, perhaps sum this up in a more coherent fashion uh, and post this uh, along with our resources. But uh, anybody who's logged in and you see the chat screen, you can take note of that as well, something you can also talk about with others. All right. Uh, thank you, Chris. He handed it off to you, Don, for um, hope and optimism. And um, one of the things he's talking about uh, is that in some ways a lot of the momentum is already kind of getting baked into the nation's uh, improvement agenda, reform agenda, and I'm wondering if you agree with that and do you feel in a sense that it's almost as though the handwriting's on the wall and we're kind of in a maelstrom right now of uncertainty, but maybe that isn't quite uh, so accurate. Well, thanks, Madge. Well, first, uh, let me thank Chris for joining us. I, I um, have benefited enormously, as have many, many people in the in public sphere, from Chris's ongoing wisdom and advice for many years. He's been a great friend and uh, very busy. And Chris, thanks so much for joining joining the program. I agree completely with what Chris said. Um, the The train has left the station. The the, the, I, the healthcare is never going to go back to the status quo configuration of the past several decades. The reasons are, as Chris said, mainly, largely the pressure on payers. It's unacceptable now on both the public and private side. It sometimes bemused me that people would be talking about Medicare and Medicaid uh, as if they were the only payer. They're not, and the private sector payers are definitely on the move. Uh, there are consequences to what's going to happen politically uh, in, in important details, the, the ways in which we commit to the safety net, for example, Medicaid and its uh, future, uh, the ways to cut Medicare costs that will be cut one way or another, uh, the amount of discipline and requirement that will be put on the private sector insurance system, uh, the nature of the benefit package and the public sector programs, these, these are all in play, but the, but the basic tectonics are the same. We are going to have to head in this country toward 
a system more organized around integrated care, less dependent on acute care and technologies, if we can do that without harming patients, which we can, more accountable, more transparent, I think, uh, uh, people that give care will be for for uh, good reasons, uh, operating more in, in under a spotlight. Uh, there'll be a decreased cost one way or another that will come under control. And uh, hopefully some of the improvements that IHI, for example, has been a leader in is patient safety and patient-centered care will be um, remain mainstays. These are being more and more demanded by both private payers and in the direction that, that, that the public payers are going. Um, the, 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 what I notice traveling around the country is I have not visited a community, I have not visited a health system which isn't uh, assuming, uh, I think correctly assuming, major changes in uh, in payments and healthcare configuration around the central theme of integration. And I, I, I don't think that's going to stop. Whether it'll proceed, whether the improvement agenda will proceed fast enough to counteract the sense of urgency that will otherwise lead to to pretty to harmful cuts in uh, in care and expenditures I don't know but uh, we're not going home again Don and Chris both uh, I guess I want to ask you um, we reminded people of the program this week and of our event on November 8th uh, and by also in part linking to an article in the Times this week this election the headline reads a stark choice in health care so uh, maybe I'll go back to you Chris for just a moment given that one of the narratives out there is that we are facing sort of starkly different visions in in um, not just even with the presidential election but in many ways of being played out in elections all across the country so how do we align these starkly d- different visions, that narrative, uh, with the ones that you're both talking about? Um, is it that the press isn't as interested in the sort of sanguine realities that you were talking about? Um, and there is a, at least a suggestion in this article in the Times that there is a portion of healthcare that's kind of holding its breath a bit. Uh, whichever way, you know, people are hoping things will go. Um, so I'm curious... What are, what, what are people uh, wondering about that could change or could be shaken up? Chris? Well, sure, and, and there's, there's reason uh, to be um, nervous and um, not particularly sanguine about um, differing approach, approaches and not to be uh, overly uh, partisan about this because I do a, a great deal of work with the Bipartisan Policy Center and we're, we're working dil- diligently to prepare for the next debate around health reform because there always is a debate around health reform uh, after this election, whomever is president. Um, I do, I guess I would say the following. Um, you know, um, Sometimes if you pursue health delivery reforms that are driven solely by federal budgetary um, uh, priorities, i.e. aligning numbers on a CBO score spreadsheet, uh, as opposed to uh, trying to figure out what policies uh, work and how best to align them and how they interact with the state and the private sectors, um, you can succeed in lowering uh, federal expenditures, but not overall health care cost expenditures, uh, not just through shifting but uh, to states in the private sector, but of course to, to beneficiaries. One, one challenge as 
you look at this debate going forward, and I think the reason why so many within the healthcare community were supportive of health reform, and again, it was was it was sort of twofold reasons. One was they they saw the trend line anyway; they were way ahead of everyone else. They saw an, an increasing number of uninsured Americans, making it very very hard. Uh, to sustain a, a workable model, both insurance uh, and cost and healthcare coordination, uh, and they felt it was going to happen anyway. So that wouldn't it be better if we tried to ensure that we had people in the system so that health plans could compete in the way and providers and systems could compete in the way that we want them to, as opposed to avoiding particular populations. That really was the underlying principle, uh, as well as to ensure that savings that were presumed within that debate were at least in part reinvested back into the system so that uh, you could have a transition period to a reform delivery system that affected all aspects um, of our system that worked both for private and public purchasers alike. And the challenge in these uh, in, in an alternative vision. And, and that's why, you know, health plans and the AMA and the AHA and the Federation and business labor and many, many others support health reform. They, they, they saw all these things as fully integrated and an important part of it, as long as it would be a private sector-based, um, private insurance-based, regionally administered with federal rules and financing. That was sort of the general deal. And and I think if you squeeze too hard on the federal contributions to that end, uh, or you uh, undermine some by repealing some of the policies that uh, are, have incented uh, health systems to change, uh, you could really uh, take some one important and negative steps backwards, and and secondarily. You would you would throw the healthcare system into a world in which, in a very unpredictable way, that they really don't want to go into, um, setting up a potential dynamic where um, the political and policy debates become even more difficult to reconcile. And and so um, look, the hope is that the policy uh, won't match the rhetoric. Um, following health reform should the president not get reelected. I suspect it won't completely, but um, but you, you know, the reality is if you are going to cut uh, you know, $700, $800 billion of the Medicaid program and restructure um, Medicare before you've found ways to really uh, make sure the delivery reforms are in place, you, you could make some really negative mistakes. And the hope will be that we'll move move ahead in a more constructive way. Thank you. I appreciate uh, that's very very um, thoughtful and helpful. Don, do you share that sense? Yeah, I think I think the um, you have to kind of look at the overall picture, which I think is inevitably headed toward integrated care, uh, more seamless care, and one way or another reduced costs. So that that that's going to happen, uh, and I think relatively soon. Uh, the question that Chris is addressing, I would call important details, which is as that's done, who gets hurt, who gets helped, who's left out, who's included. And there are differences. Uh, the, to me, the biggest 
uh, impending questions have to do with the way America discharges its responsibilities to the safety net. Um, vulnerable people in the country depend on uh, federal and state support, and there are different philosophies in play in the political winds now about how that is discharged. Do you somehow let markets work it out and back down on the federal commitment, expecting other dynamics to take over, or do you maintain a set of policies with adjustment in which uh, the federal and state governments do, do provide the safety net? Uh, this is very much in, on the table, and uh, the consequences, especially for disadvantaged populations, are quite large. The other, um, I'd say, ma major detail is, is uh, discipline in insurance markets. There are, there are reforms now in policy in the, under Obamacare that place insurance companies under quite stringent new requirements to uh, cover everyone and to do that uh, in transparent ways uh, with certain forms of accountability. Uh, other, uh, some of the politics here debates that as to whether that's a proper role for the federal government, whether somehow a freer market with less restriction or, or, uh, or regulation is better. I certainly have my opinions about that, but th these, these are not inconsequential. They're rather important. My point is one way or another, though, uh, we, we're going to get the country out of the uh, spin the gerbil cage, the more you do, the more you earn uh, way, which is not good for patients, we know that now, into a more integrated view of care. Do you think that that uh, consensus, which is certainly shared in certain circles, and payers are looking hard at this, as you and Chris have been suggesting, is that consensus growing in the healthcare delivery community itself? My opinion, Madge, is growing in the healthcare delivery community. Yeah. As I said, I, I really have not visited a hospital say system, even in the red estate, where this isn't at least the, the, the rhetoric. I mean, they're, they're talking about how to how to how to move from uh, essentially hospital-based care to home-based care to, to something closer to the patient. They don't know how to do it necessarily, but they're all talking about it. I'd say I'm not sure that is that is true of the public right now. I don't. Th I think partly because of the confusion in this political uh, uh, era, the public doesn't. Uh, uh, to completely understand or have confidence in the redesign of care as in its interest, they're suspicious. They think this is somehow will be a takeaway. I know from IHI's work and from the possibility improvement movement that uh, the patients and families and communities are real winners in a, in a coordinated care system, but we've got to make that case uh, over time to the public. All right. Thanks, Don. Thanks, Chris, uh, on the line with us. John, let's uh, open up the second poll, uh, polling question, I should say. Uh, so this is uh, one, one uh, two of three we'll ask, and I think we're going to probably multitask and have you respond to it, and we'll keep talking. So this question, for those of you on the phone, is how important do you think federal policies will be going forward in terms of accelerating or impeding your efforts to improve health and health care? You have three choices, not that important, moderately important, very important. <laughs> like multiple choice there. Okay, so go ahead, and this poll is open for five minutes, and we'll keep talking. Um, Chris, anything you want to say uh, to, to Don's remarks? I think what my, our next little section I want to get into uh, is kind of looking at states in particular, and Don started to tee that up a little bit about uh, safety net and vulnerable. Um, but Don says he goes into the reddest state, and he's seeing um, a growing consensus, although people aren't always sure of the path forward. Is that your impression as well? Well, uh, yes, although I would I would say um, 
it's not just some states where they're not certain about the exact path. It's most people. They just know that they're headed. They they know what direction they're headed. Mm -hmm. They're looking for hints along the way. They're looking for what directions they're going to get from purchasers, both private and public, over time, what kind of reliable um, payments they can they can count on and how they will be aligned in terms of incentives. They're looking at uh, what populations will be covered or not covered. In many states, um, uh, they're wondering whether uh, there'll be a large population of low-income people who, uh, notwithstanding substantial financial incentives, may not be enrolled for some time to come, putting them somewhat at a disadvantage from other states around the country. So um, it, it's a really, uh, I, I, from, from state to state, uh, it's, it's, it's very, very different. Um, and, of course, um, you know, there, there, there are certain uh, uh, external factors that, that impact um, some of these um, decisions as well that are, are not related to federal policy, but um, the economy writ large. Uh, so for, for all these reasons, I think that there's a sense of general direction. There's a sense of where we need to go, where we need to be. Uh, but I, uh, but I, I think there's, there's still a good deal of discomfort and frankly some distrust about the reliability of of um, partners within that process, and that that trust gets built up, frankly, over time as success begets success, and that's that's where we need to, that's where really where we need to be targeting our efforts in the upcoming months and years. Thanks, Chris. Don, just a very quick pop question. Um, for years, in many ways, IHI and the improvement movement had one eye on certainly what was going on. Uh, you know, nobody can ignore the economy and policies, et cetera, in the market. And yet there was a sense of being able to just keep keep on barreling. And, you know, you've written many a speech uh, about the will and the ideas uh, regardless. Do you feel we are in a new era, though, in which it's a dynamic now between these larger policies and what the improvement moving, what, you know, when you're looking for that acceleration right now? Is, is that a new – are we in some new place there? It feels like it to me um, the, the, um, in two ways. One is uh, not where your question is coming from, but, but important is uh, our capacity, our knowledge base. If you ask me the question eight years ago, the, could the triple aim be accomplished, or triple aim that IHI speaks of all the time, better care, better health, and lower cost at the same time? I would have said on theoretic grounds, yes, but we have yet to see – Systems that are functioning at that level—that's uh, not true anymore. Uh, we there are now we can find uh, both in the U.S. and in other places uh, very good examples of designs of care systems that achieve that. That builds my confidence. So we're we're, we're really ready. I've been seeing saying lately it's not really a technical problem. That is, we know what healthcare looks like now that is better better care and lower cost. Um, uh, the readiness of the system to act is 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 shifting. Uh, in the past decade, we've seen much more enthusiasm for, say, patient safety in hospitals. We've knocked the socks off central line infections, really, in the country in many places, and could do the same for pressure ulcers and post-operative infections, surgical surgical complications, and so on. That we would have done anyway. The new game here is the integrated systems game, understanding uh, larger processes and how to keep 
care seamless over time and space for patients. And now, because of the reforms we're in the middle of and the demands for seamless care, I think there is more and more interest in how to do that. But Chris is absolutely right. The, I would say the transition problem isn't solved. So many executives say to me, they use that metaphor, I feel like I have one foot on the dock and one in the boat and the boat's drifting mm-hmm. away. What they mean is uh, half their day they're immersed in a fee-for-service, volume-driven, yeah. fragmented system where they make money one way. And the other half of the day, they're trying to get over into the world of accountable care and uh, uh, global budgets and capitation and ACOs, which is a different business model. And they have to do both at the same time and with all the capital they have invested and all the labor as it's currently in place, um, the transitions are very, very hard. Mm-hmm. Thanks a lot. Um, okay, so let's see. Are we done with that poll yet, uh, John? Yeah, that poll just closed out a minute ago. Okay, thank you very much. Thanks, Don. Um, all big questions. Thank you all for bearing with us as we try to cover a lot of ground. Let's see what the results were, are. How important do you think federal policies will be going forward in terms of accelerating? Not that important. Well, that well, didn't even register. Oh, sorry. 1%. I'm not sure. Moderately. Okay. Very. Well, that kind of dovetails. <laughs> and in terms of asking if we are in a new world, uh, that, that may, you know, may speak to what you're talking about in terms of integrated care. Yeah, this is a very, Interesting finding. I mean, I, I w- I've seen so much momentum on the private payer side, for example, that I would have predicted a less uh, a less robust uh, response to this question. But yeah, people are saying that the Fed, as we suspect, the federal policy environment is crucial in this country, even though we're largely a private sector system. Interesting. Just so you know, um, while we have about 813 participants, it looks to me like we have had about 378 voting. Yeah, uh, the folks on the phone can't vote, unfortunately, Yeah, uh, but about uh, more than half of you uh, yeah. on the WebEx are voting. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that. Okay. All right. Just before we go to questions, uh, Don, excuse me, John, throw up. Thank you all. Uh, John, throw up the third poll, and that will be the backdrop for our um, just final little discussion point here, and then we'll open things up for what's on your mind, those of you who've joined us. So... The third one is going to be specifically on, on states. And for people on the phone, the question is, how important do you think state policies will be going forward in accelerating or impeding your efforts to improve health and health care? And again, the choices are not that important, moderately important, and very important. Um, all right, Chris, we're going to do this. We'll be a little quicker here uh, so we can get up to questions and uh, comments, and we can all, always circle back. So states are not all states are on board with health exchanges, one feature of the affordable Care Act. Some have left money on the table. Uh, that certainly hasn't helped already squeezed uh, Medicaid programs in terms of funding. So um, are we looking at kind of a different set of dynamics and scenarios depending on the outcome uh, of the election in terms of the intersection of change at the state level and health policy? Chris? Well, I I believe this is where you see the most immediate and distinct differences. Um, the uh, when you compare and contrast the two, I know I don't have much time, so I promise I'll be quick. But <laughs> okay. the two, the the two candidates, what you and their policies, what states will do will will vary substantially. The, those who are um, already committed if the president gets reelected, uh, will continue to go, in fact, aggressively more, even more so. Those that were on the cusp will, will move, uh, accelerate, um, uh, much more quickly. 
those that were divided, and there's a lot of red states that, I mean, the deep red states who basically said, no, I'm not going to do this, some will refuse to implement under any scenario, including some of the Medicaid expansions, but but the feds will go ahead and try to do exchanges at those state levels, but I think they'll be not as productively um, they, they won't achieve the level of success that they otherwise might have. And other states will then, in that environment, say, uh, no, we want more flexibility and delay to implement our own exchanges. And and this, these exchanges will not only have relevance to coverage and access, but I think potentially to delivery forms from the private sector pressure points. And in, in the case of the uh, Romney administration, I think, uh, you know, you'll see states stepping back quite a bit. They'll sort of say, well, what's, what's happening to me? What, what, what should I do? Should I do anything? Should I wait and see? And I think as a general rule, uh, except for those states that were really ready to go, and those states will basically ask for waivers to do what the heck they want. Um, I think a lot of the other states will be looking for not only what they aren't going to be doing in an exchange world, but but also how Medicaid policy uh, and some significant declines in federal support for um, those policies will affect their ability to d- deliver care, particularly those populations Don was talking about in the, in the relatively underserved or low-income populations. So I, I really believe that uh, you'll see huge difference. This, 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 the question you ask has far more relevant and immediate implications about state policy post-election than perhaps any other aspect of the healthcare delivery system. Thank you, Chris. Don, share that feeling? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Uh, the, the Supreme Court decision and uh, the, the politics of the moment are putting states into a more pivotal position with respect to the choices they make again back to my earlier comments about the safety net. I think that it is the vulnerable populations that are going to be most affected by how this plays out. My own hope and prediction is that despite the political uh, uh, rifts right now, states will over time realize that the opportunities they have with federal support to expand Medicaid are important ones to take. This will help them, help the states and the patients uh, in, the, in the short run and the long run, and that the uh, the possibility of um, vibrant exchanges, places, uh, marketplaces where people can find affordable coverage uh, is in everybody's interest, and no matter what their politics are. And I, I hope uh, it took a little while for every state to adopt uh, Medicaid when it was passed in 1965, and we may be in the same frame now given the Supreme Court holdings. But uh, especially if Obamacare stays in place, I think we'll see the states um, – uh, come on board to an opportunity to provide uh, the safety net they, that, that we really need. Okay, thank you both. All right, John, uh, we're um, not quite done with the poll. Uh, so as soon as we are, we just have about 20 seconds left, and then we'll look at the result, and then we're going to open up the chat for your questions and comments. And uh, I want to say that all the setting of the table that we're doing here, including your participation, we're going to sort of gather up and uh, Chris and Don and others are going to bring right with them to this meeting in Washington, D.C. on November 8th, which you're invited to learn more about as well on IHI.org. And so we hope uh, we, we have a sort of um, a, a couple of weeks worth of, of some good discussion. Uh, and again, anyone on the phone who uh, in any way is feeling left out, if you're not logged in, feel free to add your comments to info at IHI.org, uh, and we will definitely uh, share your comments uh, with Don and with Chris and with others. We do appreciate that. 
All right, here comes the magic number. All right, so it's a little more nuanced there. Um, and if you hear any banging in the background, this is a man with suction cups who is going by our studio window washing our apologies. <laughs> <laughs> Some things you can't do anything about unless you want to get up on a pulley yourself um, and do the windows. Okay, so the in this question, we asked how important uh, will state policies be going forward in, in either accelerating and or impeding. Uh, again, nobody really opted for not that important, only 16 of you, but um, we have about 120 of nine of you said moderately important, and then we have another 241 who's saying very important. So I think between the moderates and the very, we're still in an era of, uh, we're still uh, looking at some uh, great influence, and uh, I promise you all, nothing's happening here, and actually Alan Olison assured me that you can't even hear it, so um, just rest assured we'll see more daylight, won't we, Don? <laughs> As the windows clear up here. So, um, John, remind, thank you all for t taking part in the chat. Again, we'll make sure this is all on the website by tomorrow morning along with the archived audio. Uh, now let's um, kind of open up this more our discussion board. So I'm going to flip this around myself so I can see. And uh, we'll open things up for questions and comments that you have. And I will just say as one more preamble, uh, rest assured, if we don't get to your question directly, again, Don, Chris, uh, we're kind of pulling it together a lot of different ideas and thinking right now, and it's not for naught. We'll try to get to as much as we can. Um, all right, so let's uh, go. John, you want to just remind everybody about the chat? Yeah, just quickly, um, if, if, when you're chatting a question in, uh, make sure that you uh, chat it at all participants so that way uh, everybody can see, uh, everybody except for the window washer guy. Uh, he will not be able to see it, but uh, we'll be able to see it here in the studio, and that's what's important. So all participants. All right. Again, all participants uh, chatting in. Uh, you're a lively group because you've been taking part in the poll, I can tell already. Uh, so we'll wait, await your questions. And um, okay, Sean is out of the gate. Um, his question, maybe we'll go to, um, and we'll, we'll try and, and Chris and Don, just to uh, get to as many of these as possible, let's try and give sort of short answers. I don't mean so much to shortchange anybody, but so we can get to stuff. So Sean is wondering how much of the Affordable Care Act is repealable. Um, so uh, Chris, quick uh, comments on that? Well, um, <laughs> uh there is, uh, you know, you can say theoretically, or you can see, say um, actually. Uh, theoretically, of course, the whole law could be repealed. Um, in actuality, if the uh, if if Governor Romney becomes president, um, there and and there is a uh, majority in the Senate and the Republican, and assuming the content, the House remains Republican controlled. Uh, substantial elements of this law can be passed and enacted through a process called reconciliation, uh, particularly those things related to funding. So the, the subsidies uh, for the coverage expansions um, would be quite real. And, and of course, uh, while many would argue some of the exchange policy and certainly the insurance reforms would be difficult to be struck, uh, without the financing, without the coverage, uh, the the issue of the sustainability of those insurance reforms would certainly be um, be at risk. 
And I would say many of the uh, delivery reforms, to the extent that they have scored savings by the Congressional Budget Office, um, arguably they could be um, struck as well. Um, although I would argue uh, that m many elements could could well be retained too. But but I would say the uh, sort of the financial underpinnings of the law uh, through a reconciliation process and its impact on the law would substantially um, and significantly harm uh, the sustainability of the Affordable Care Act. And over time, uh, it would sort of wither on the vine. Don, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, think, I think Chris is right. I mean, technically, it could all be repealed. I believe the, uh, the a, a straighter shot is to starve the administrative uh, momentum. Uh, I would say two other things, though. One is uh, a lot of the affordable characters are already in place, and uh, these are regulations related to uh, to um, uh, guaranteed issue for children, uh, expansion of prevention benefits for Medicaid, Medicare beneficiaries, uh, transparency rules for health insurers, and so on. There, there are there are quite literally dozens of provisions that are already in place. They have effects now. I personally think unwinding them, just saying, oh no, we never mind, we didn't mean it, would be technically very, very difficult, almost irresponsibly so. And so I, I think that. Uh, I just think that would be unlikely. The other is the political side. There are benefits out there now uh, as a result of this, uh, the, the implementation that's already occurred. Take prevention benefits. Um, millions of children covered under their parents' policies under age 26 and so on. So I, I, I suspect there will be some pretty hot political areas that uh, nobody's going to want to tamper with um, because the public uh, will feel it to be something important taken away. Thank you. Um, what is going to happen in the states that do not participate in Medicaid reform? Um, <laughs> I think that we started to kind of um, speak to that uh, in terms of, uh, well, actually, regardless of, of uh, election outcome, there still is there, this dynamic may still be in play. Don, well, there's a, there are statutory and, and uh, jurisprudential issues here under, under the law. If a state doesn't participate in in Medicaid reform, by which that, that I think the question means the establishment of a state exchange, the federal government has the obligation to establish an exchange that is then available to the citizens of the state. Uh, that's technically difficult. A highly uncooperative state could make that really, really hard for the federal government to appropriately discharge its responsibilities under the law. From the point of view of patients, um, the, 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 uh, the, the law um, creates an environment in which uh, in the United States about uh, 32 million people get coverage who otherwise would not have had it. Partly they get that through expansion of Medicaid, and, the, and now the Supreme Court has said the state could could uh, stay out of the expansion but still maintain its old Medicaid system, which means people between whatever eligibility level the state has and 133 percent of poverty would not be covered by Medicaid. Uh, and with respect to the exchanges, well, the questioner is implying the state could stand aside, and that's another 16 million people who then couldn't find insurance. So theoretically, uh, literally millions and millions of people in the country and at the state level, a substantial portion of the population would be without insurance. I think it's important to understand those people don't go away. They're still there. They're still going to show up in emergency rooms. They're still going to need care. And um, arguably what happens is that the federal support for that care that would exist under the 
Affordable Care Act uh, simply is not going to be available in states that choose to, to take a pass. The patients remain, the care remains, and the cost will remain. Okay. Thank you, Don. For either one of you, is graduate medical education uh, in any way vulnerable uh, at this moment uh, as a result of any election outcomes here? Um, I don't know if that's something, Chris, you're following at all. Uh, if not, I'll... Well, uh, yeah. We get this question a lot, and, and, and certainly um, the both through the sequester that will be coming up uh, in January if the Congress cannot come up with an alternative. And if they can come up with an alternative, uh, IME funding, indirect medical education funding through the Medicare program uh, could well be at risk um, for a whole lot of different reasons, but mostly because people are looking for federal savings. Um, so uh, there is um, some success uh, of some institutions making the case that if you really are going to be serious about being able to develop a and train a workforce that we need to have uh, to uh, appropriately and adequately um, uh, respond to these new challenges and provide care to these populations, that this could be a, a, a poor course of action. Could also make the argument that the private sector should be also making contributions to this 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 outcome as well, but but clearly it will be at the heart uh, of of the debate both in the immediate term and in the longer term. And the question probably won't be uh, whether some will be, and it will just be more a question about how much. And I don't anticipate. I, I having seen this debate play out before, I have some confidence in some of the academic institutions to do relatively well in their advocacy on Capitol Hill, but not as well as they'd like to. Thank you, Don. Yeah. Meanwhile, uh, a story is playing out that I am involved in. Should mention that yeah. uh, Gail Walensky, former CMS administrator, and I have been named co-chairs of a committee that's just started in the Institute of Medicine to review graduate medical education funding and accountability in the U.S. That report will be out in about 18 months, okay. and that that reflects, uh, I think, a substantial need in the country to rethink uh, the GME funding stream and how how we can put it to best advantage for the public. Lots. Thank you, Don. Uh, and thanks for that question. Lots of really good stuff here. And again, a reminder that we will be rolling, we'll continue to take your questions and ideas uh, uh, along the road here. Um, also, as we head to D.C. for a meeting on November 8th, which you're all invited to as well. So uh, first of all, somebody is saying here, just uh, I, I guess this is Sean Mitchell. Many of us have signed on to a lawsuit to prevent the repeal of the AC of Romney wins. The lawsuit is scheduled to be filed both in the federal courts and state courts. So that's an interesting um, news item that you heard here on WIHI. Um, I'm not sure we know more about that right now, but we um, the question, do you believe the Supreme Court would rehear the case? That may be a little bit more uh, technical and complicated for us to get into, but thank you for raising it. And maybe some of you who are on the program today might want to respond to that. Um, an interesting comment, uh, it, this, this was from Sheldon who says, it seems that inside the Beltway, Washington views much of this as a pol- policy dispute on the ground in Kansas, sorry, Kansas, it's much more controversial, viewed at no less as a, I'm sorry, I really can read, viewed as no less than a socialist takeover. Is there a recognition in Washington of that level of animosity and a plan to maybe educate people, to kind of address 
this. Um, now you're both, you've both been kind of in the middle of this, uh, in different ways. Uh, Chris, may, why don't I start with you and then Don? Okay. Well, very, very quickly, um, no, the, there's no one in or outside of Washington who, unless they're, you know, blind and deaf, uh, have not heard, seen, and felt the intensity of this issue um, throughout the country. Um, this really is one of those Mars-Venus type viewpoints of what this healthcare debate is is all about. And and, and we 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 I, I think Don and I try to raise it above that level to some extent. One because. We feel so strongly uh, that the delivery reforms that people are talking about really aren't very partisan at, at any level of Republicans and Democrats and should not be so. So we try to avoid, avoid engaging in that type of rhetoric. Um, I, I think it's the, the caller or, or the, the writer is absolutely correct that um, there needs to be a far better uh, educational effort involved in the, the, the process of what this is and isn't. The, the law, um, ironically, um, I've been doing this for 30 years, so I can just tell you, is is the most bipartisan, partisan law in the history of mankind. I call it that because uh, virtually every underpinning of the law, whether it be state exchanges, state-based approaches, private insurance, no public option, individual responsibility, paid for, etc., are all Republican tenants and requirements that were part of the health reform debate throughout the 90s and early 2000s. Um, so it, it, in many ways, it, it fully integrates much of the system. What, what really, in terms of if you ask Republican policymakers in Washington, they will largely acknowledge that, but they'll say that the, the law went too far too fast in terms of the resources. But in comparison to what how people are feeling and talking about this law, which is absolutely right, um, you know, communistic takeover, uh, you know, the, the policy belies um, that type of analysis, certainly. Um, but um, the only thing I will tell you is that I have found that the only anecdote to that problem is over time having Republicans and Democrats be engaged in reforming the reform because this law will be reformed over time. And as they do, they get more invested in the law. And all one needs to point to is the Medicare law where Republicans and Democrats now trip over themselves saying that they're the protectors of the program. Uh, uh, and, and I suspect at some point the Affordable Care Act and 20 years out, if it sustains the next four years, will be along those lines as well. Thanks, Chris. Um, I'm going to direct a slightly different question to Don. Um, Don uh, is uh, continuing to spend a bunch of time helping out with a variety of IHI projects, and that's why this question, I think, continues to be very germane. How can providers become more engaged in measuring and reducing health care costs um, how how to get kind of a greater engagement um, on those matters and really being able to to track what folks are doing? You know, this this is the to me this is the bright spot, the real window for for positive change. Uh, if providers, doctors, nurses, pharmacists, those who organize care, really were to take responsibility for the triple aim for better care, better health, and lower cost, here's where the science really can help. The sciences that IHI has worked on for years that uh, that are just very well documented. There is 
is waste in healthcare. We know that. It's massive, the amount of energy that goes into activities that don't help patients. We can argue about the reasons for it. They're, they're historic. I don't think they're venal. I don't think it's because people intend it. But we have a tremendous amount of wasted energy in healthcare. The Institute of Medicine report just two weeks ago, best care, lower cost, uh, estimates 30% waste. Uh, the paper that Andy Hackbarth and I published in JAMA in last uh, uh, April estimates 34% waste at the median. Well, who sees that waste? Patients do, families do, and providers of care do. And I don't think they like it. I don't think they want it. And if I could just coach the American healthcare provider system to rescue healthcare would be around that issue. We have to refocus our energies on those activities which actually really help patients and communities and families thrive and really stop those that have been driven for too long by a volume-based system that don't help people and probably hurt them because it exposes them to hazard. I really trust the doctors and nurses and, uh, and with their patients in America to identify that and get to work on it. If we do that, we are out of the woods. And really, at that point, the, what happens in the public policy arena is far less consequential. Indeed, it would help solve some of the problems the policymakers are wrestling with. I've never seen a more important moment for clinical leadership of improvement. Terrific. Um, there is a comment here, thanks, Don, uh, from Janice, who is referring to the fact that organizations have to meet a, a wide, well, have to deal with a wide variety of guidelines, regulations, standards, and she's suggesting that there's some opportunity here for greater consolidation, uh, perhaps another form of waste, all this administrative time taken up with rules. Do, do you agree with that? Absolutely. We have the data. Now, David Cutler's uh, terrific analyses here in his recent testimony to Congress, the work that, again, the Rand Corporation and I did on this, and it's it's well known exactly the number, how much waste there is in the administrative complexities is not, you can't nail it down to a nickel, but it's hundreds of billions of dollars a year, and that is that is waste. We need to get rid of it. President Obama, shortly after he took office, issued an executive order to all agencies uh, uh, requiring uh, the hunting and removal of any regulations that are not added value. That is a very active, ongoing process, and that could happen on the private side as well. Big opportunity there. Okay, great. Um, can I take the opportunity, Madge, to say it's been a, a great conversation. Uh, it's always a pleasure to, to work with and listen to Chris. And I want to invite the people who are listening here to uh, think about joining the program that you mentioned. Chris will be there with me with Tom Daschle, Senator Daschle, Senator Bill Frist, uh, Maureen Bisignano, the IHI CEO, and a, a great lineup of other uh, people uh, at the Museum in Washington, D.C. on November 8th, just two days after the election. Um, I'm going to be really interested in hearing what experts like Chris and Tom Daschle and Bill Frist say about those elections, the outcomes, the policy implications. We'll spend the morning doing that. Part of the morning is going to be asking these analysts to tell us what happened and what the implications are. Then we're going to switch to a really exciting series of panels of various sectors uh, of people who are leading or driving change or following to take stock of what they think about what the implications are for pass forward. I think what IHI is trying to do with this meeting is to stabilize our own thinking all together about the improvement movement, its agenda, and how to keep it going no matter what the results of those elections are and, and how what adjustments will be needed in face of those elections. It's going to be very participative participatory, a lot of uh, group work. Uh, I think a lot of strategies have come out of it, and our aim for the day is actually to catalog those strategies uh, with our improvement 
colleagues. Uh, Chris and I have these wonderful comments today to, to chew on as we approach November 8th, but I hope a lot of the people listening might consider joining us in Washington in person at that event on November 8th. All right. Thanks a lot, Don. Thank you all. And I'm really uh, thrilled. An hour goes by very, very quickly, and um, we appreciate that you took an hour out of your day to be with us here. And again, we will uh, keep track of all the chat questions, and when you log off the program today, you can get this chat as well. You can get the polling results. Um, and if you were joining us by phone only, email us at info at IHI.org to get all the resources. Chris, you're going to get, except for my sort of goodbye remarks, you're going to get the last word here. <laughs> we're so thrilled uh, that we were able to barge into your schedule and get some of your time. Uh, kind of final parting shots, words to live by, keep everybody uh, sleeping at night and breathing uh, regularly. <laughs> Well, uh, well, first of all, it was a pleasure uh, to be with you, Madge, and, and uh, you know, uh, <laughs> we just all call Doc Don, Dr. Don, and we do pretty much what he prescribes, and we figure that for the most part it will work out okay, and we certainly hope so. Um, I, I would, um, I, I guess I would conclude that, um, uh, to, to, to say that elections and the rhetoric around them uh, do create a perception that nothing can get done, and, and indeed, frequently, they don't. But I, I have to say that um, because there is such a demand for greater comedy and, and, and more consistency of messaging and policy, particularly around the issues of delivery reform, that I ironically, uh, and, and because Congress has to act next year. They can't just avoid acting. They have to act. I think that we may see some movement towards greater reliable and more bipartisan messaging about which way we want the healthcare delivery system to go after, not before, but after this election is over. And uh, all I can hope for is that um, it does not involve uh, excessive disruption, particularly for for some of the most underserved people in this country. But for the most part, I think uh, we're going to see um, a, a coming together of, of many people uh, around these some of these very, very important issues that we've talked about today. And I, I appreciate the opportunity to have been here with you. Thank you so much, Chris. And I, I love being surrounded by optimism. I hope that uh, it kind of offered something uh, for all of you as well in the weeks and months ahead. Uh, thank you so much for your participation, both Chris and Don and all of you who joined us. Uh, there were over 800 of you at, at one point. We really are grateful. Remind your friends and colleagues that the audio of this program and related resources and information in the chat will all be available on IHI.org. Uh, today is Friday, so that may be either by the end of today or come Monday morning um, or possibly Saturday morning if you're like some of us and <laughs> poke around on IHI.org over the weekend. I want to tell you that next up on WIHI on October 25th, the program is called Gaining Ground, Quality Improvement, uh, and U.S. Medical Residency. Lots of stuff going on at the residency level, and we have the likes of James Moses, Kedar Mate, and Donald Goldman, who will, uh, IHI Senior Vice President, who will be on board to tell us what's been going on. Uh, lots of activity. There's a web, the webpage about that program is live now. Again, download the chat if you'd like, or Im, uh, email us at info at IHI.org to get hold of it. Check out all the resources tomorrow morning. Any questions whatsoever, info at IHI 
WIHI.org. The people who help make WIHI possible are, ta-da, Mike Sweeney, Jameson Case, Jesse McCall, Alan Olison, Vicki Minden, John Gothier, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, and Matt Morse, and our Northeastern co-op, Dina Cox. And I also want to give a big shout out to Gail Freeman, who from IHI, our Vice President for Marketing and Communications, who helped us a great deal with the show, too. We have original arrangements that open and close the show. We hope you enjoy them. And it's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving patient care, most of all, for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. Thanks for your great, enthusiastic, and wonderful comments today. I'm Madge Kaplan. Good day. Good day.